Go to Matthew 3. We're going to be at the end of Matthew 3 and then the beginning of Matthew 4. A couple things before I launch. (laughs) I say launch because, well, uh, on the app, I posted my notes, my full notes, which are not my preaching notes, but my full notes are seven pages. Um, this is uh, the unofficial beginning of a series that I'll officially kick off this weekend, but I couldn't miss such a great opportunity to speak from the this text on Ash Wednesday and to be with you, the body of Christ, and come to the table of the Lord. It is the most important thing we will do today. Not what I say, not what you hear me say, but coming to the table of the Lord is the most important thing we will do together today. Um, but by way of preparation for that, I want you to see I feel like my life's purpose is not just, at a personal note, it's to know Jesus, but part of the way I work out what I believe to be called to is in knowing Jesus to do everything I can to get people to see Jesus, and in seeing Jesus be transformed by Jesus. Um, I think we have too many veneered versions of Jesus And we need to get back to seeing Jesus for who he is and who the scriptures say he is. And today, the text primarily will come from Jesus' wilderness temptations. If you have started the reading plan that we started earlier this week, uh, if you've not, fear not, uh, it's not heavy lifting, uh, you can begin on our app. You will see uh, a little banner at the top that says, follow me. And it has daily readings. Uh, We're going to go through the Gospel of Matthew together, starting this week and going all the way to Easter. Um, If you've never read one of the Gospels all the way through, this is a great opportunity to do so. You'll be doing it with the whole church. Uh, And the readings of the wilderness temptations, depending on what day you started, are either today or tomorrow, um, if you're really late, day after tomorrow. Um, But... uh, I want to I unpack that, and this, this text is um, a lot like an onion, that you just peel one layer, and there's another layer, and you peel that layer, and there's another layer, and I'm telling you, it's bottomless. It is absolutely incredible, the biblical authors, specifically Matthew, the way he's communicating very important things to us. But before I do that, uh, I, we're going to do something. It's going to require something very small from you. Uh, And since your heart raced a little bit right there, fear not, it's okay. I'm going to ask you for something, but what I'm going to do, I don't know how many of you grew up in a liturgical background. Anybody grew up uh, in a high church liturgy? Like four of you guys, okay? So how many of you guys have no clue what the word liturgy is? Okay, I know who I'm amongst. All right. How many of you guys, liturgy is a cuss word? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, since you'll have no clue what I'm about to do, the four of you that raised your hands in a high church liturgy context, uh, I'm going to do something that uh, the church actually began a tradition. Now, don't get, don't, don't, tradition's not a cuss word. Everybody's got traditions. The question is, like, what are they for, and do you know their purpose, and are they achieving their purpose? Um. There's a tradition in uh, church gatherings that every, for every sermon, there is a text, and that text is connected to the whole of Scripture. So there would be weekly readings, uh, one from the Old Testament, one from the Psalms, one from the New Testament, and then a gospel reading. And these readings were just to show you how your Scripture is all connected that your scriptures is one coherent, incredible story that leads to Jesus. That Jesus is the climax of and fulfillment of this story. 
And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you a little bit from the Old Testament, a little bit from the Psalms, well, 12 verses. I don't know if that's a little bit or a lot. I don't know how much you read. A couple verses from the New Testament, and then we're going to begin the Gospel text. And when I get to the Gospel text, I'm going to ask you to stand. And we do that not because we're being super religious and weird and all that. It is a symbolic action to say we elevate the words of Jesus above all else. Okay? And I'm going to ask you a very tiny bit of participation. When I conclude Matthew 4, verse 11, I will say simply the word of the Lord. And the whole congregation responds, praise be to our God. And all that is is a way of verbalizing the way our heart is to be postured, open, ready to receive the word by praising him. Simple. Got it? All right. Old Testament reading. Deuteronomy 2, a Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 through 5. Remember, when I'm done, praise be to our God. Praise be to our God. You can do it. I believe in you. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 through 5. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 to 16. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would you stand for the reading of the gospel? Good job. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. 
And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Excellent. You can be seated. If we are going to follow Jesus, um, this story acts absolutely critical for us to understand what it's going to be like to be a follower of Jesus and to live well in this world. Uh, Gospels were written, these are like biographies, and the way these stories were passed down is there would be eyewitnesses, disciples, who would listen to the teaching or observe certain behaviors, and then they would record that, and we, we see that collection here. But in this particular case, none of them were present. You just have Jesus. And so the only way the disciples, specifically Matthew here, would have seen this or known this story is for Jesus to have told them about this story, which means Jesus found this absolutely critical for his disciples to hear, learn, and understand what it's going, what, because they're going to face some of the same temptations. Now, um, Matthew, you just have to assume that Matthew is brilliant, okay? You should assume that about all biblical writers. Not just that they were inspired of the Holy Spirit, um, but being inspired of the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as like the reverse demonic uh, possession, where, you know, when the Spirit led them to write this, that like they lost all control and their eyes closed and their hand automatically moved. That never happened. Um, but these guys were literary geniuses. And Matthew specifically has the entire storyline of the Bible in his mind with every word he writes. Now, in your, in your notes, if you're on the app, if you see the notes, I, I took the whole first page of my notes to just show you what's going on in the first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew because those first 17 verses are very boring. It's a genealogy. Have you ever read it? No, you haven't. You saw it and you skipped over. <laughs> uh, but there's so much going on, and I just showed you in the notes, I just said, here's two or three things going on. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely incredible what, what Matthew's doing because he has the whole story of Israel and the whole story of humanity in his mind when he's writing to us about who Jesus is. And Jesus here, in this text, you have uh, Jesus' baptism, where he goes into the water. When he comes up, the Spirit descends on him like the dove. And the Father speaks very important words. 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately, though there should be a little bit of little fireworks going on, because that one sentence has at least five to ten Old Testament texts packed into it. One would be Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, where God, Yahweh, tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. And so here, Jesus takes the entire people of Israel into himself as son. The other place would be Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. But the most important place from the Psalms reading is Psalm 2, that is one of the most important Psalms we can understand or know. Because it's what's called a messianic psalm. That the people of Israel were hoping for a Messiah, Messiah or Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, it, is a, it is a title. Um, it is a mission, a vocation. Greek is Christ or Christos. And the Hebrew is Mashiach or we transliterate that Messiah. Messiah is the king from the line of David that Israel was waiting for who would liberate them from their enemies and the king that would be from the line of David would be called the son of God. This comes from 2 Samuel 7, God's covenant with David where he says that there will be your line, there will be a son come from you that I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And so this son would be called the Son of God. Now, it just so happens that we, mainly because of the Gospel of John, um, we know Jesus as the Son in a Trinitarian sense, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we think the Son of God is a statement about his divinity. When in this, in this context and in this text, the Son of God is not a statement about his divinity, though it's true. It's a statement that he will be the king from the line of David, that will not just be Israel's king, but king of the whole world. And that's what Psalm 2 is trying to say in poetic form, is that the nations are raging against this anointed. And if you look up that that word anointed, it's capitalized, anointed, and that's the, the meaning of Messiah, the anointed one. And that this anointed one, God would set as king. King of the whole world. And then he says, You nations, you rulers, be warned. You're raging, you're fighting, not just with each other, but with God. And God, what does he think about all the nations that are are disrupted, that are raging against him? He laughs. He's not bothered by them because he set a king in place. And so Matthew's trying to show us, this is Jesus. When you hear all those texts, This is G. You should think of Jesus. And then, um, in whom I'm well pleased is a quote from Isaiah 42, verse 1, that those first seven verses of Isaiah 42 talk about the servant, the servant that is going to come on Israel's behalf to do um, for Israel what Israel couldn't do itself, be faithful to God, be faithful to the covenant and be a kingdom of priests to bring God's justice and mercy into the world. And so Israel was called God's servant, but Israel as God's servant failed, and so they needed a servant who would stand on behalf of Israel and be God's servant to bring justice and mercy and peace to the whole world. And he'll do it not by raging, not by grasping. It says that he'll be, he'll be like he won't even be heard very often. Or he'll be he'll be like a like a reed, kind of kind of whispering. He's not trying to push himself out there, but he will be faithful. He will be a light to the nations. So all that's happening in one statement. And so Matthew's saying, This is it. This is the guy. This is the Son of God, the liberating King, Messiah, that we've been waiting for, and God is well pleased. He has a vocation to bring justice to the nations. Now, as we go into the wilderness temptations, again, this is multi-layered, so I'm going to try to get a few of those layers out in whatever time I have with you. Um, 
I don't want to spend too much time, though it's very, oh, it's so enjoyable to me showing how Jesus is the climax to the story of Israel. Um, because I, th- I think you need, to, you need to see a little bit of that just to understand that the big part of your Bible, the Old Testament, it's not boring. It's not as boring as you think it is. It actually has a lot of meaning. But I also want to hit the layer of what that means for us and, and our identity. So let me see what I can do with that. <laughs> um, so Jesus is declared the son of God, an identity, um, before he does anything. Before he acts, before he performs a single miracle, as far as we can tell, for, for the 30 years of Jesus' life, there's some supernatural things with his birth. We see a tiny little story in Luke 2 of him being 12 and then nothing until 30, until this moment. And he's declared, his, he gets his identity straight from his father before he does anything. So his identity has been given to him by his father, not something he earned. Okay? So this, this understanding his identity in, in his father shapes the foundation of who he is and what he's called to do. That he is the beloved of God and whom God is pleased with before he's done anything. And if we follow the story all the way through, we, we should understand our own identity in Christ is that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. And so we then, in this moment, are proclaimed to be the beloved children of God in whom he is well pleased before you did anything, good or bad, in whom he is well pleased before you did anything, good or bad. And so we have to see ourselves, your identity is based on the love of God, not your behavior. Not your good works, not anything else other than the love of God. And it's with that foundation now you enter into another season, a season of testing. Now, the way Matthew writes this, Matthew 4, 1, who leads Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. Not the devil leading Jesus into the wilderness. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. To be tempted. Does anybody in their translation have the word tested? Okay. Like, nobody. All right. You say, it says tempted. All right, so that's a tough word. Um, the word there in Greek, we, we hear our English word tempt. Uh, we don't tempt people with good. Right? So when you hear the word tempt, it's always tempt towards evil, correct? And that's not what's going on. So test is an a accurate way of understanding this. Testing um, is not testing to make someone fail. If you're a teacher and you teach your students certain materials, certain contents, how will you know if they know it? Testing them. Not because you're trying to get them to fail, but because you're trying to see what, is, what do they know. How will they act? If you are designing a, a product, you, you, let's just say it's some type of machinery, you need to run tests to see if it does what it's designed to do, to see what the character of it is. And so Jesus is being led into the wilderness to see what is true of him. To see what's in him. To see what his character really is. And the way this is written, led in, but the spirit led into the wilderness for 40 days, is an, is, it, is, it is a callback back to Deuteronomy 8 that is saying Israel was led by the spirit into the wilderness. For what? To be tested. To see what's in your heart. To see if you would be humble, to see if you would obey. And so you got you know, to know as a disciple of Jesus, you cannot avoid the wilderness. If you are following the Spirit, that includes times and seasons where the Spirit will lead you into a time of testing. And the testing is not for you to fail. 
It's not for, to tempt you with evil. It's to see what's inside of you. And so <clears throat> what Matthew is showing us here <clears throat> is that Jesus now is replaying Israel's story from the wilderness. That's what he's trying to show you, is that now uh, Israel was led into the wilderness um, for 40 years, and it was to humble them to see what was in their heart, to see if they would obey. How did they do? Terrible. Failed. Miserably. And so now Israel, God's firstborn son, is now into Jesus, the son of God, now replaying this same story. What's he going to do? When was another time that we see the tempter with another human to test them? All the way back in Genesis 3. And so not only is Jesus acting on behalf of Israel, he's acting on behalf of all of humanity, who's failed the test since the beginning. And he does that by knowing who he is, his identity. And in what is the temptation, how does the tempter, which by the way, in case you want to know this, a little bit of Bible nerdum here. Um, when it says Satan or the devil, always in scripture, there's, there's now it, translators struggled with this, so they end up putting a capital S on Satan numerous times. But in Hebrew, it's hasatan, a definite article, the, the Satan, Satan literally just means adversary. So the Bible doesn't even give this entity a proper name. It would, it would be to dignify it too much. And I get for literary purposes we say he, but it's more appropriate it. It's just a, the devil, the devil, the Satan, the tempter. Because he's not even worthy of a, a name. Okay, so, so what's, what does this tempter, what is this tempter trying to do? The tempter comes, and what's the first thing out of its mouth? If you are the son of God. Okay, so, Jesus has just been declared um, the son of God. Now, whether you personally believe that or not, that's your choice. But if you're just reading the story, the story is presenting Jesus as the Son of God. And so now, he, he has an identity as the beloved, the beloved of God. God loves him. And that is who he is. A beloved child of God. The beloved Son of God. And so the first thing out of the, the tempter's mouth is to question that identity. Well, if you really are the Son of God. And he says, turn these stones into bread. Now, so, <laughs> I don't know what images come to your mind, but you probably, with Jesus' wilderness temptations, you probably have this artwork in your mind of like a little gargoyle that has come to Jesus and like, you know, tempting him and he's just talking to a little, you know, snake-like reptile figure. Um, uh, it, it, that's not what's going on, Okay. So the tempter's coming to Jesus exactly the same way the tempter comes to you. Voices in your head. And so the tempter comes and says, oh, if you are the son of God, how come you're hungry? How come you're out here? How come you're faced with hunger? Because if you're the son of God, I don't know if God's love would bring you here. I don't know if this would happen in your life if God really did love you. But since you're the son of God, I think you can do something about it. So what the tempter is trying to do is undermine his identity by putting his trust in the Father and his loyalty to the Father on the line. Can I, the beloved child of God, trust God? Can I be loyal and faithful to him? 
or do I feel like I have to do it myself? I am not able to get through this quickly. So, because <laughs> you, hear, you hear these same voices in your head. And it's the same tempter tempting you. Oh, if God loves you so much, how come this happened? But if you really are the beloved child of God, you can do something about it. So the the temptation, the test, can Jesus trust God? Can he stay loyal? Can he trust that God will lead him, that the Father will lead him into his will and him not have to do it himself? Can he trust God regardless of his circumstances? And so what Jesus does is not allow circumstances to define his life, define who God is to him. And so what does he do? He appeals to scripture as the definer of his sonship. But Jesus said, verse four, but Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, it's a noble thing to feed people. It's a noble thing to feed the hungry. We are commanded to do so. Uh, And Jesus does on multiple occasions. However, Jesus is having to, to discern, to walk out, to work out how, what kind of king is he going to be? What kind of kingdom is he going to bring? And so the temptation, go feed everybody. That'll make you king. You can do something about it. And what's, it's, it's a noble thing to feed people, but what Jesus recognizes is that Humans can have all the food they need and all the shelter and clothing they need and yet, and yet not be, not live a flourishing life. I mean, the food, shelter, clothing, that puts you on the same status as like llamas and bugs. The deepest need is not just that our stomachs are full, though it's important. If Jesus is going to just feed stomachs, he would fail at liberating us. Because the freedom we need is not just food for our stomachs. The freedom we need is freedom from our cravings and our hungers controlling and guiding our behavior. We need saved. We need free Humans need more than food and shelter and clothing. We need meaning. We need purpose. We need a story. We need community. And if humans have food, shelter, and clothing, and yet do not have meaning and purpose and a story and community, we are still living a subhuman existence. And so Jesus says that there is only one thing that meets the real need of the human heart the life-giving, liberating word of God. It is the word who defines who we are and who, what defines meaning in our lives. The word spoken by the Father, I trust more than my circumstances. I trust the word. I trust the word from the Father more than I trust my circumstances. The word from the Father defines reality for me more than my circumstances. The hell of hunger and thirst do not define meaning in my life. I mean, think about it. Jesus is starving. Have you ever fasted 40 days? No, you have not. You're dying. You literally start dying. Somewhere in the 30s, definitely by 40 days, your body eats itself. You're dying. And that's a hell. That's a hell on earth. And yet he says, love and loyalty to the Father whom I trust is more real 
than the circumstances I find myself in. Jesus says there's more to life than filling the stomach. Life, true life, is being fed by the ongoing continual word from God. Another little layer here, besides the identity of God in this situation, God is my provider. Who do I trust God to be? If I trust his word, then I trust what the word says about his character. Not only that, I trust that the story presented defining God's character is true about God's character. That would be a a layer here of do I trust God to be my provider or do I feel like I have to do it all myself? But a, a very important layer is how we understand our own identity. And there is a temptation that we are drawn to to define our identity by what we do. What we do bad, what we do good, what we do as a job, that my identity is found in what I do. And there's a lot of of pastoring to try to help you through in that. But Jesus here, he could achieve something great and be known, be famous for being able to feed people. And he could, if he, even if he solved humanity's hunger crisis, he would not be considered a success in God's eyes. Because you are not what you do. You are not what you do bad, nor are you what you do good. Who you are is not defined by the job you have, by the title you wear, but by the word of God. And you are going to be tempted to define yourself by your performance. And that's not who you are. You are the beloved child of God in whom God is pleased even when you screw it up. Even if you have all the titles of power and fame, even if you are the best behaved, good little religious trooper, you are not what you do. And if we can be a church who understands that part of our identity, what would that do for our children? That an entire generation of children are not defined by their behavior, but defined by the beloved identity of a child of God. Okay. Temptation two. The devil, probably in some kind of vision, the devil takes him in his mind. This hasn't happened, literally. In his mind, takes him to the temple, the highest point of the temple. This is the hot spot of God's presence, the temple. It's where, this is what I'll talk about this weekend. It's where heaven touched earth in the, in the Jewish imagination, was the temple, where heaven touched earth. And again, he questions, he puts Jesus, he tries to undermine Jesus' identity, if you are the son of God. And then he tries a new tactic, quote Bible. Throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. Another little Bible nerd thing, just for a second. I like throwing these things out, just because it keeps it interesting. Did you know? Every time the word angel is used in scripture, it never associates a human-like figure having wings. Did you know that? Angels don't have wings, guys. Cherubim and seraphim do, but they're not called angels. They're just called creatures. So all that artwork for like all of Christian history, it's wrong. And it's become a little bit of a pet peeve to me. It shouldn't, but, but it is. It says on their hands, not on their wings. Okay, so do you know where, he's, where, where the devil is quoting this from? Any other Bible nerd out there? Psalms, what Psalm? 91, Psalm 91. It's a beautiful poem of finding our refuge in God and promises of his protection promises of dependence and how we trust God. It's beautiful. However, apparently, you can interpret that wrong. And so what the tempter is trying to do is to get Jesus to prove something. 
if you are the son of God, prove it. You've got all these promises. If you just go act, you would prove you are who you say you are. You could prove it. You could prove that God's hand of protection is over you. You could prove you really are a child of God. You can prove you really are the son of God. And so what, what Jesus does is, again, it is written. It's like, hey, yeah, you're going you're gonna to try to throw some Bible at me? I'm going to throw some Bible back at you. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's uh, from Deuteronomy 6 about how Israel was going through the wilderness trying constantly testing God to get him to prove that he cares for them. It didn't matter that he delivered them from slavery. It didn't matter that he fed them from a, uh, fed them manna. Like bread out of nowhere. And the only way they could say is what is this? That's mean that's the meaning of the word manna. What is this? Uh he he gives them drink from water flowing from a rock. And yet they constantly, constantly prove it, prove it. And so Jesus says, you don't test God. The tester twists the scriptures, treating the scriptures as a genie in the bottle formula. Perform a trick and God has to be in your service. And that proves you are the, lo- you are the loved of God and you are blessed. There is a temptation that you and I have to actually try to take control of even God and treat his word, treat his promises as a little butler or a vending machine. Punch in the right code, boom, you have to do what I say you have to do. And that puts the Lord your God to the test. Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I can trust God to do what he says he's going to do, and I don't have to manipulate him to do it. (laughs) I'm going to quote something for you. This is so good. From a famous and very well-learned teacher. Once again, Satan made a direct assault on Jesus' identity. He knew that if he could get Jesus to waver in his identity, he could derail his destiny. He tried to get Jesus to prove who he was by some kind of action, doing versus being. But Jesus knew who he was and had nothing to prove. You know who said that? The famous Dwayne Sheriff. That's in the last four pages of his book, Identity Theft. Get it, read it, learn it, live it. Okay? And his second book is about to come out. You should get that too. So listen, God defines who you are. You don't get to define that for yourself. And if it is true who he says you are, then you have nothing to prove. You can just obey him, surrender to him, and trust him, and you have to prove nothing. A way of thinking about this, you are not what others think. Your identity is not defined by what others think of you. We're addicts of people's approval. And for whatever good social media can do, it has equitable negative effects on you. That you worship at the altar of the next like the next positive comment, the next share. What if you and I were just completely defined by who God says we are and you had nothing to prove? You could be quiet. You wouldn't have to use your words to try to manipulate people's perception of you. You wouldn't have to do large acts to prove something to get other people's attention and approval, to try to prove to them you're worth something, to try to prove to them you are somebody. (laughs) 
we often live in a trap of a pretend life out of an unhealthy concern for what people think of us. Author and pastor by the name of Pete Scazzaro says, true freedom comes when we no longer need to be somebody special in other people's eyes because we know we are lovable and good enough. Henry Nouwen, a famous um, monk, last century, our society is not a community radiant with the love of Christ, but a dangerous network of domination and manipulation in which we can easily get entangled and lose our soul. Instead of being content in our identity in Christ, being loved and accepted child of God that we are, we express that discontent by compulsions of attention, of affirmation, and applause. And yet our true identity is that we are loved and that we are enough. Temptation three. Understand, there are way more layers than I'm able to say here. There's even more going on. I'm just here to kind of poke you a little bit. Get you to realize you don't have what it takes. You need Jesus. But in Jesus... You are loved, you are accepted, you are the beloved child of God in whom he is well pleased. Temptation three. <laughs> the devil takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says, I'll give you all these if you will fall down and worship me. Okay, again, it's not like some gargoyle, reptil- gargoyle reptilian creature that's like, here, would you get on your knees and like bow to me? No, that's not what's going on. It's committing, it's, it's a type of idolatry. So he doesn't, he doesn't challenge Jesus' identity. That tactic's not working. Um, what, what the enemy does do is appeal to Jesus' destiny. Jesus is the king, right? That's, that's what's being presented to us. He's the Messiah. He's the liberating king. He is the king of all the world. And so what kind of king is he going to, how is he going to bring that about? What kind of king will he be and what kind of kingdom will he bring? How will he do this? His destiny is to rule the world. But what's happening here is that we are being told that the systems and structures of humans, uh, politics, nations, what we're being told is that there is a force, a force of evil that is influencing and even controlling these systems. And if that seems outrageous to you, just look at the 20th century. The 20th century, many of you, most of you, yeah, most of you, were born in the, tw- in the bloodiest century of human history. Millions and millions and millions of people were slaughtered in the name of some utopia. And so evil is influenced. Evil has influenced these structures and systems, governments and nations. And it is Jesus' destiny to rule the world. Psalm 2 and a ton of other scriptures And so how is he going to bring that about? Is he going to grasp for the reins of power? Is he going to fulfill his destiny through a shortcut and through compromise? That's what he's being offered. I give you everything, just compromise a little bit. I'll give you a shortcut. Instead of trusting God... Not just to fulfill his will, but to fulfill God's will, God's way, which often is a slower route than we would prefer. It often comes through pain and through trial that we would prefer to avoid. The temptation is I can achieve God's will, but I'll do it my way. That's idolatry, that's compromise. And it is to surrender and submit to the evil. Can you be patient? Can you trust? Can you 
not just know God's will and commit to God's will, but allow him through the patient, challenging process also be your guide towards his will and not compromise his way. He makes an offer of power. And so is, is he going to seize the reins of power his own way? And Jesus has actually kind of an emotional response. It's very visceral. Be gone, Satan. Be gone. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus recognizes that there is something demonic influencing him. And this influence is compromising the heart of what he came to do. And it's not the only time he's tempted with this. And it's not the only time he says this. Matthew 16. I'll get there in this series. But oh, if, if Siri, every time I say series or serious, Siri thinks I'm talking to her. So <laughs> sorry if that was me or if that's you. I don't know. But Matthew 16, Jesus says, hey, you know, who, who's, who's everybody saying I am? And the disciples go, yeah, some say, you know, Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets, some say you're John the Baptist. And he's like, okay, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, pick me, pick me, pick me. And he always does that. Peter always talks first. And he says, hey, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, that's right. Like, and I say that you are a rock and on a little rock and on the big rock of that confession, I build my church. Then he proceeds to say, now, the Messiah I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter goes, uh-uh-uh, no, sir. No, I just said you're the Messiah, and you said I'm right. Messiahs don't die. If you're the real Messiah, then you should actually be killing those Romans. Because that's what Messiahs do. And what does Jesus do? He speaks to Peter, but he says to the tempter, get behind me, Satan. It's the same temptation, and he's already defeated it once, and so he recognizes it in his ears. Jesus will not be a king that grasps for the reins of power, slaughtering humans in the name of power and possession. These temptations are Jesus trusting the Father in becoming a different kind of king, one of self-giving love. In living and dying for this kingdom, he shapes a new kind of people, calling us to follow him in the way of self-giving love. You are not what you have. Jesus did not become the Messiah, the Son of God. He was not a beloved child of God just because he fulfilled his destiny by ruling the nations. He he did nothing and had nothing when the Father proclaimed him the beloved Son of God. And so now Jesus, he could fulfill God's will but his own way and yet not succeed in fulfilling God's will. Because it is not about what he has, power. Nor is your identity shaped by what you have. Or in many cases, don't have. How much of our life do we spend grasping? Grasping for the next sale item. Grasping for the next upgrade. Grasping for the next title and promotion. Because we can't trust God to be our leader and guide. We think we have to make it for ourselves. And so we grasp at life. And that grasping is to fail. It's to give in to the tempter. You you could be tempted to believe that because you have less, you're loved less. And it's a common voice from the enemy that whispers, see what they have? I think God loves them more than you. If God really loved you, you'd have that too. 
And you know what? If you just name it and claim it, I bet God give it to you too. But we'll see. I don't know if you're loved. Mm. Jesus models a surrender to the Father as the anchor of identity. That no matter what I have or do not have, no matter what others have or do not have, I am secure in the one who loves me and is pleased with me. Being a disciple of Jesus is like going through the wilderness. If you become a disciple, do not expect your life to become easy. As long as you're going with the enemy, he has no reason to tempt you. You're already given in. You're not a threat. He's not worried about you. And you might live under a false assumption that your life is easier serving the devil. You're only taking a loan out that it's going to bankrupt you when you live that way. And so if you turn the tide towards following Jesus, a different kind of king, living from a different kind of kingdom, you can expect to be assaulted by this voice, by this temptation. And the world that is under the influence of this evil is conspiring against you to give in. And yet, it's not easy, but it is simple. You are the beloved child of God. And he's pleased with you. You don't have to have a certain job. You don't have to have a certain title. You don't have to follow certain rules. You don't have to be better than others. You don't have to have anything. See if I can get this quote. It's off the top of my head from C.S. Lewis. The one who has everything and yet does not know God has no more than the one who has nothing and yet has God. Do you know who you are? Do you really know who you are? Because as long as the devil can undermine your identity, he can undermine the rest of your life. And the call of Jesus is a call to trust. Can you trust God? Can you be faithful? Can you be loyal? Not because of any action, but because of an understanding of who you really are. And that that identity is the foundation of your life. Jesus, the foundation of your life. Psalms 103, as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord. It says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. In our fleshly humanity, we are quite incapable. We give in. We fail, we fall short. And God shows compassion, and instead of holding that against us, he sends his son, who is the faithful human. When we have been faithless, he is the faithful one. And in his life, his death, and his resurrection, he then gives his life to us. And because of that, we then can receive him as our identity. Not because of anything we've done or not done, but simply because of his work. That's grace. And so as we come to the table of the Lord, I'm going to invite our servers to come forward and get things prepared. This action, and this is a part of following Jesus, is not just listening to words, but kind of walking them out and living them out. And this meal has everything packed into it. 
that when we are at this table, there's nothing we can bring to this table except our open hands. Jesus provides what is on this table. And what he provides is his own life. And all are welcome to this table. Those who have failed, those who have sinned, those who have fallen short, those who have given in are all welcome to hear the body of the Lord broken for you. You that made that mistake last night. You that said that wrong thing to your coworker today. You who've boned it big time. You, the body of the Lord, broken for you. And the one who was perfect, the one who never failed, the one who never gave in to the tempter, that's the one that says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's the one who never gave in to the tempter that says, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Everything is here at this table because Jesus is here and he is everything we need. So what we're gonna do is I'm gonna ask everyone to come to the table. And what we'll do is you'll pinch off from the bread and you'll take the cup and take it back to your seats. And we will partake together because we need community. Part of being human is to be in community. And we receive together the body of the Lord broken for us together and the blood of Christ shed for us. And as you come to the table, you will hear said to you, the body of the Lord broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And then we'll all partake together. So if you would, stand with me. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It says, let us now therefore come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy. Why do I need to receive mercy? Because I need it. And find grace to help in our time of need. Our time of need is now. There's never a point where we're not in need. At this table, this is very similar to our family table. And at our family table, I remind my five children who they are. That they are mine. And that they are not at this table because they behaved well. They're at this table not because they can avoid messes. That is not happening. Not in our family. They're at that table because they're mine. And I worked to provide the food. My wife worked to make sure it was there and prepared they receive the fruit of our labor. And so we at the table of the Lord receive the fruit of his labor, of his generosity, of his self-giving love. That kind of king who dies for me, I give my life for. That kind of kingdom is the kingdom I will live from. And that's what we're invited to at this table. The body of the Lord broken for you and for me, for our healing, you may partake. The blood of Christ, the only innocent one who gave his life and shed his blood to without earning or without deserving, give forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. The blood of Christ shed for you, you may partake. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and your loving kindness for us and for all you have made. 
We bless you for our creation and our preservation and all the many blessings of this life. But most of all, for the immeasurable love poured out in the redemption of the world through our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. We pray, give us such an awareness of your tender mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but also with our lives, by the giving up of ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory, wisdom and power, throughout all ages, both now and forever. Amen. You are the beloved child of God, in whom he's well pleased. Now let's go live that out and invite others into that kingdom. You're dismissed. I'll see you this weekend.